If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Half a league, half a league, half a league onwards. All in the valley of death rode the 600. So goes Alfred Lord Tennyson's poem The Charge of the Light Brigade, which famously, though not entirely accurately, describes the events of the 1854 Battle of Balaclava, which was a key moment in the Crimean War. In episode two of our series exploring the big questions of the Crimean War, Professor Andrew Lambert takes Rachel Dinning through some of the key battles and moments that shaped the conflict. From Balaclava to the first clash along the Danube to the fierce fight to take Sevastopol. So firstly, Andrew, just to set the scene, where exactly did the Crimean War take place? Because it wasn't just in Crimea, was it? No, I think that's one of the great misnomers. Many wars have nice simple names like World War I, which covers pretty much everything. The Crimean War becomes, certainly for the British, the Crimean War in the 1890s, when the last survivors of the, the fighting in the Crimea pass away. Before that, it was known as the War with Russia or the Great Russian War, which is a much better label. It is Britain's major war with Russia. So the fighting begins between the Ottoman Empire and the Russians on the Danube River in what is now Romania. Uh, It then extends across into the north coast of Anatolia at a place called Sinope where there's a naval battle. There's fighting in the Caucasus in Georgia, Armenia. There's fighting in the Crimea, as we know. But the major campaign is actually in the Baltic, where the Russian capital is. There's a major campaign in the White Sea around Archangel. And there's also some fighting in the extreme far east of Russia around Petropavlovsk. So this is a global war. It's a war fought in a relatively limited way. But it does involve the mobilization of very large amounts of military power, particularly in Russia. And it's largely fought in a maritime character. No British soldier was ever more than one day's march from the beach because marching into Russia, as Napoleon learned in 1812, is a very, very bad idea unless you have an army even bigger than the Russian army, and nobody does. So it's a global maritime coastal war with a strong maritime economic warfare element. And in terms of military strategy, you've argued that this is a war that was determined by naval power specifically. Um, So can you explain the importance of naval warfare to the outcome of the conflict? The Crimean War is a limited maritime conflict. What we're looking at is the world's largest navy allied to the second largest navy, both of whom have the latest steam-powered warships, fighting the third largest navy, which doesn't have the largest classes of new steam warships, in a series of campaigns which are defined by seas, the Black Sea, the Baltic, the White Sea, the Pacific. There is no fighting inside Russia. The fighting is on the Russian frontiers, on Russian islands, on Russian peninsulas. Command of the sea means that when the Crimean War 
is declared in March 1854 by the British and the French, uh, Allied troops are already at Istanbul, defending the city against a Russian invasion. They're then moved by sea to Varna in modern Bulgaria to stop them crossing the Balkan Mountains and marching on Istanbul. And then they're lifted by sea into the Crimea, where they spend the next 12 months entirely supported by maritime logistics, which brings in all of their food, all of their ammunition, all of their reinforcements, and evacuates all of their casualties by sea. This is an entirely maritime war. It is not a terrestrial campaign at all. And the target in the Crimea is Russia's Black Sea naval base, Sevastopol. Sevastopol is not a major city, it's a major naval base. And the destruction of the naval base and the fleet is the, the rationale for the Crimean campaign, uh, which is not the whole of the Crimean War. And did any country have a distinct advantage during the war in terms of military hardware or strategy or weaponry? It seems quite safe to assume that Britain would have a naval advantage, perhaps. But um, what about other things? No, that's absolutely right. Britain is the dominant marine engineering and shipbuilding power. So the British have the latest weapons, the latest engines, uh, and the most number of, of powerful warships. They have the largest navy by manpower as well. But the war happens at a cusp in technology. So while if you look at the pictures, it looks remarkably like the Battle of Waterloo. They're all dressed up in very colourful uniforms, marching in very tight formations. Most of the British and French troops are armed with rifles, not with muskets. A musket is accurate to about 50 paces. Um, a rifle is accurate to about 300. And this is a transformational moment on the battlefield. The Russians don't have rifles or very, very few of them. So in any kind of infantry firefight, the Russians are going to lose. And they're going to lose a lot of men in the process. And that happens in all of the infantry fighting in the Crimea. It's why the Russians fight behind walls. It's the only way they can avoid getting slaughtered in the open field by superior technology. The Allies are even using uh, rifled cannon in the siege of Sevastopol as well, although not very many. Russia doesn't have access to high technology. It can't manufacture rifles. It can't import them because of the British blockade. And so it's condemned to fight this war with the weapons of Borodino, whereas the British and French are using the latest high technology rifles. That is a major transformation. Even more significant, everybody will be familiar with the famous charge of the Light Brigade. The most scientific thing the British took to the Crimea was horsepower. The British breeding program had produced some amazing horses, big, powerful, fast horses that could cover long distances with fully equipped troopers on board. They absolutely transformed the nature of the cavalry charge from a short dash to a very long, sustained gallop. It meant that when the British collided with the Russians on horseback, the Russians were simply knocked out of the way by these much bigger, stronger, faster horses. And after the charge of the Light Brigade, the Russians never again came out on horseback to engage with the British. So superior horses, superior technology, superior weapons, but even things like mass-produced rations. The British are using machine-made products where the Russians are using things that are handmade. And the supply lines are different. British logistics into the Crimea are better than Russian logistics because the British have 3,000 miles to cover with a steamship. The Russians are having to drag their stores over the steppe in winter, and they're losing a lot of men and draft animals and a lot of supplies. 
So the Russians are actually outsupplied in their own country by superior technology. I mean, when you describe it like that, it seems inevitable that Russia would lose. But did Russia ever have the advantage or push back in any way? Russia has some great advantages. It's, it's playing at home. Uh, it's on Russian ground. It's ground they should be fairly familiar with. They don't initially have a numerical advantage in the Crimea, but they will build up something of, a, of an advantage in manpower. And they're willing to sacrifice large amounts of human life to achieve their tactical and strategic objectives. So the Russians compromise uh, with their technical weaknesses by using large numbers of men. Russian casualties in this war will be astronomical. Figures are of around 800,000 military casualties uh, have been widely touted. There are no strictly accurate figures, but Russian casualties were enormous. Being at home, being defending a fortress gives you advantages which compensate for those technological weaknesses. But by the end of the war, the British and French are turning up with armour-plated warships to bombard Russian fortresses. Again, brand new technology. The Russians' new technology in this war is the underwater mine to try and stop ships steaming into their harbours. Uh, but they bought that from the Swedes and the Germans. I'd like to have a look at some of the main battles and I was wondering maybe we could look at it in a sort of chronological order. Could we start by you telling our listeners about the first military engagement of the conflict? The Battle of Altanuta is, is a Turkish offensive across the Danube into what we would now call Romania. Uh, they attack the Russians and defeat them. This is astonishing. Everybody has assumed that the Turkish army isn't very good and that they will lose but the Turks have some very good generals. Um, Omar Pasha, who is a former Croat soldier from the Austro-Hungarian Empire, has trained up a very good European-style army, and they are better equipped than the Russians, and they will defeat the Russians, not just here, but in other battles as well. The Turks are not the sick men of Europe. They are still fighting very stoutly to defend their country. And remember, they are in their own country. It's just been occupied by the Russians. So the significance of the battle isn't taking ground, it's just beating the Russians. The Russians assumed they would beat the Turks just by turning up. They've just lost this battle and they're not going to make much process, progress in the rest of the campaign against the Turks in this theatre or anywhere else. And then the first significant naval action of the war occurred at the Battle of Sinope in December 1853. And this was really the battle that prompted Western intervention. What was it about this battle that, that prompted the West, you know, we, we're going to get involved here? The action at Sinope, which is literally halfway along the coast of uh, northern coast of Anatolia, the Turks are using the sea to reinforce their army in the Caucasus. And the Russians send their squadron out from Sevastopol to intercept it so that they can cut the logistics link and weaken the Turkish army. The Turkish squadron is comprised of frigates and smaller vessels, not battleships. The Russians have six large battleships. And they turn up towards the end of the day and they just take up a position and destroy the entire Turkish fleet using overwhelming firepower. Um, it's quite an interesting battle because the Russians are firing exploding shells, which are relatively new in naval warfare, but they didn't need exploding shells to sink the much smaller Turkish ships. They had more than enough firepower. They also knocked down half the town behind the Turkish fleet as well at the same time. This is much celebrated by the Russians, who very rarely win naval battles, so this is something they, they boast about for a very long time. 
In Britain, it's received very badly. The assumption is that the British rule the waves, the Russians should do as they're told, which doesn't involve attacking the Turks. And so very quickly, the government is under serious pressure to do something. And this does push the government towards a declaration of war rather faster than they might have imagined. So this sense that the, the Russians have somehow offended the natural order of things by winning a naval battle uh, prompts the government to order the British fleet into the Black Sea, and they send a dispatch vessel to Sevastopol to tell the Russians not to come to sea ever again on pain of having their ships taken away. While they're in Sevastopol Harbour delivering the message, the captain and officers of the message ship take a great deal of notice of where all the Russian defences are and, and draw some plans. They're not meant to, but war is war. So this is when the Russian fleet goes out, it does something, it's then neutralised and it will not leave harbour again, ever. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And then I wanted to ask about Britain's first victory in the Crimean War in the Orland Islands, I believe, uh, which is a battle that wasn't actually reported very widely, despite being a pretty major strategic success. Why has this moment in the Crimean War been overlooked in narratives about it? We've now into August 1854, in the height of the summer in the Baltic. Uh, the weather is fabulous. The Russians have a base on the Orland Islands, which are literally halfway between the, the southwest tip of Finland and Stockholm. It allows the Russians to threaten Sweden. It's a very dangerous base, and it gives them control of the Baltic. So the British surround the island and prepare to take it. The French send some troops, and the British Admiral hopes the Russians will send their fleet out to try and rescue these islands uh, when he will engage and destroy it. The Russians don't do that. They just sit in the forts, the troops land, the forts are then demolished by naval and land gunfire, and the Russians are taken as prisoners of war and brought back to Britain and France. It's not reported with any enthusiasm because very few people got killed, certainly on the Allied side. There just aren't enough casualties. The senior naval officer at the Admiralty said, look, nobody's much interested because the butcher's bill hasn't been high enough. Nobody famous got killed. It was not that kind of battle. So the Crimean War is going to be a war where you repeat, you're repeatedly finding that the narrative of battle reporting is about casualty. And if the casualties aren't very high, the battle report isn't very long and people are not very interested. This is the single battle that is referred to by the Prime Minister in his speech celebrating the victory in the war at the end of the war. It's the first victory and it's a major strategic blow. Russia is never again going to be as powerful in the Baltic as it was before that fortress was destroyed. It's a massive strategic blow and it's effectively ignored for not being messy enough. 
Next up, I've got the Battle of the Alma, which is where the West fully entered the war with um, the British, the French and Ottoman troops landing on the Crimean Peninsula. Do you think Russia expected all of this allied resistance from the West or was it a surprise to them to see these three forces coming together against them? It's clear that the Russians had underestimated how determined the Western allies were. I think at the political level, they didn't believe that Britain and France could cooperate effectively, that their long-standing rivalry would simply prevent this happening. Secondly, they'd underestimated how quickly an army of 50,000 men can be moved by steam-powered shipping. Um, in previous generations, the largest army ever moved by sea quickly was 40,000 men, and it was just across the Straits of Dover. These troops would come 3,000 miles, and they're going to be landed on the coast of Russia with all of their gear. So the Russians haven't reinforced the Crimea. It's an obvious target. They don't have enough troops there, and they end up creating a very strong defensive position on the banks of the River Alma, on the south bank, because the Allies have landed north of Sevastopol. The Allies are going to have to cross a fairly shallow river and then walk up a fairly steep hill towards some very strong Russian defences. They're able to do this because the Russian general has laid all his pieces on the board very carefully and they're in all the right places. He then leaves the battle to unfold as it will. He takes no intervention in the battle once it starts and his troops are defeated in detail. The French outflank the Russians along the coast, uh, relying on naval gunfire support and the British army in its typical way instead of outflanking the russians and doing something clever uh, just shows how brave it is and marches straight uphill and drives the russians off the field uh, by direct action made much easier by the fact the british have rifles and the, Ru and the russians don't so the british are outranging the russians in all the firefights and the british infantry are long service regulars the russians are relatively undertrained but it's, it's a critical battle. The Allies win, and if they'd followed the battle up, they would almost certainly have taken Sevastopol within a week. Uh, they fail because the French marshal decides that he doesn't want to rush off the battlefield. Uh, he's actually dying of cancer, and he's, his mood swings mean that on some days he's quite aggressive, and on other days he's really rather passive. And by the end of the day of the battle, he's had enough, and he just needs a rest. How interesting. It's another moment again where it's a bit of a sliding doors. It could have gone a very different way. They've taken different action then. Yeah, it certainly could. Um, one Allied commander would have made a much better decision than two. Um, Napoleon always said this. He would rather fight two brilliant generals on the other side than one ordinary one because the two brilliant men would disagree and, and nothing much would happen, whereas one ordinary general could at least make a decision both the Allied commanders at the Alma were, in, in operational terms, fairly ordinary men. But uh, having two of them spoiled everything. How interesting. Can't have two leaders. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask about the Battle of Balaclava, which is the battle that most people will be familiar with, for it's the one in Alfred Lord Tennyson's famous poem, The Charge of the Light Brigade. Can you give us a bit of an overview of this battle firstly? Balaclava is a, is, is a nicely complex battle, which involves several different factors. And of course, yes, as you say, it is very much remembered by Lord Tennyson's great poem. The problem of, of which is it's wholly inaccurate. Um, he wrote it having read a, an initial report of the battle, which suggested that the Light Brigade had been pretty much wiped out. 
He'd finished it when he found out that that wasn't the case, but it was so good he published it anyway. So it's a piece of fiction, um, but it's dominated the way we perceive the battle as this catastrophic event. So after the Battle of the Alma, the Allies march round Sevastopol and then come at it from the south in the confident hope that the southern defences of Sevastopol were less powerful than the northern defences. By the time they'd got ready to attack it, the Russians had built some very large defences. The population of Sevastopol and the Russian navy, who mostly manned the defences, put up huge earthworks and they had plenty of big Russian naval cannon to defend them with. There was a grand attack on the 17th of October, 1854, which failed. And then the Russians got some reinforcements coming into the Crimea and used those to attack the Allied flank, the exposed eastern flank of the Allied position, which was held largely by British cavalry. The French didn't have very much cavalry in the Crimea at that stage. So the two British cavalry brigades are down on a plain below the high ground where the the rest of the army is. And they're just guarding the flank. The Russians then put in an attack. They capture some redoubts in which uh, Ottoman troops, mostly Egyptian levies, uh, and a few royal artillerymen are keeping an eye on the Russians. Russians capture these positions. And this makes Lord Raglan, the British general, very excited because his master, the Duke of Wellington, never lost a single cannon in all of his campaigns. And he's just lost several. So he wants to get the cannon back. That becomes important. At the same time, a large Russian force of light cavalry uh, ride down towards Balaclava, which is the port through which the British are bringing in their satours and evacuating their wounded. So Balaclava is 10 miles south of the British camp and about 12 miles south of the fighting line. The Russians are hoping to attack the port, cut the British off and drive the Allies all the way out of the Crimea. When they get to the outskirts of the port, they meet a regiment of Highland troops who drive them off. And as they retreat, they're then intercepted and attacked by the British heavy cavalry. Uh, People forget this action because not many people got killed or wounded. Uh, The heavy cavalry then trot, because they're going uphill through a vineyard, they can't go much more than the trot, they trot into the the Russian light cavalry, uh, barge them aside, drive them off the field, and then the Royal Horse Artillery unlimber and fire shrapnel at the Russians, killing quite a lot of them. Um, The heavy cavalrymen don't kill many Russians because they'd forgotten to sharpen their swords. Um, This is a a physical pushing competition. Everybody who's ever seen the household cavalry on parade will know what these heavy cavalrymen look like because that is the Crimean War heavy cavalry uniform. And the Russians are on very small ponies. Um, So it's like these heavy cavalry troops are riding through a pony club gymkhana. It's, It's a physical contest and a very unfair one. At this point, the Light Brigade watches these Russian troops retreating in disorder and they could, if they'd used any initiative, attack them in the flank and completely wipe them out. But they don't because the general commanding the Light Brigade, Lord Cardigan, will not do anything without an order. You know, I'm sure that's good soldierly practice, but it doesn't suggest his intelligence is particularly high. The Russians then retreat. Lord Raglan, who is sitting up on the high ground overlooking all of this, can see far more than everybody else. He can see the Russians removing the cannon from the redoubts that they've taken earlier, in the, and he orders the light cavalry to go and recover those guns. His ADC, Ed, uh, Edmund Nolan, who rides down into the valley with the order, is challenged on where these guns are because Lord Lucan, the head of the cavalry, and Lord Cardigan cannot see any guns and they can see no redoubts 
So when Lucan is is asked for the direction of these cannon, he points rather loosely over his shoulder, and Cardigan believes that he's pointed down the valley, at the end of which are some real Russian cannon which are ready to fire. And that probably wasn't what he meant to do, but it was a careless and rather aggressive gesture. Cardigan says we will all be killed, and then promptly leads the light cavalry to be killed down the valley. There are about 620 cavalrymen took part in five regiments. Um, they galloped from about 250 yards out, which is a very long distance, which speaks very highly of the quality of the horses uh, and the discipline of the men. They rode through the Russian gun line, um, would have captured most of the guns if they'd been supported, and then drove off uh, two or 3,000 Russian light cavalry. At that point, they realized they had no support, so they retired in relatively good order back up the valley, uh, having made their point. Uh, total casualties, about 120 men killed, wounded, prisoner, out of 620. The cost in horses rather higher, sadly, because horses are bigger. But hugely impressive feat, probably the last great cavalry charge in a full-scale battle between major military powers and far more effective than the legend would have it, the Russians never again came out on horseback to challenge the British, despite having far more cavalrymen. The battle then peters out. Um, it's a draw. The Russians have taken a few cannon. The British have driven the Russians off the field. The British are still besieging Sevastopol. Nothing has changed, really. So it's an, it's an interesting field exercise, and the controversy about the charge of the Light Brigade has come to dominate what is a fairly conventional battle. Do you think it's the poem that has made it so prominent in public conscious? Was it Tennyson's poem that made it so popular, do you think? I think its popularity is because there's a there's an almost constant drip feed of, of reportage about this. The first thing that turns up is the Times report from William Howard Russell, who's on the spot, and he generates this idea that these men were massacred in almost entirely due to the incompetence of their aristocratic officers. So there's a class war element in the initial report. These posh guys have led these working class fellows to their deaths, and isn't that terrible? And Russell got it wrong. He had the, the numbers of men who mustered at the end of the charge. That's only the men who were able to ride back up the valley on unwounded and horses that were still fit enough to ride. Most of the horses were either blown or wounded and were not able to get back to the, the muster line in time to be mustered. So the real figures is 120 who didn't come back rather than 120 was all that came back. He later corrected himself, but by that time Tennyson had written the poem and, and expressed the, the sentiments which are in the poem. The battle becomes such a cause celebre that there's a court of inquiry held on the conduct of Lord Lucan, who ordered the charge, and Lord Cardigan, who presided over it. Uh, so it it keeps dragging on. It becomes one of those things that won't go away, one of those news events that just crops up every five minutes. So the poem keeps it alive. The court-martial on Lucan and Cardigan keeps it alive. Neither Lucan nor Cardigan are particularly admirable human beings, so it's very easy to throw a lot of blame on them. Then Lord Raglan's life is written up in a grand style to exculpate him from being re from responsibility. So it's it's serving a lot of agendas. A lot of people have a, a stake in this battle being uh, something other than what it really was. 
Sure, that makes a lot of sense. So next on my list is the Battle of Inkerman. Um, so after the Charge of the Light Brigade had seen deaths of soldiers led by misguided generals, the Battle of Inkerman was a very different affair. It was a conflict that became known as the Soldiers' Battle. I was curious, what, why was it called that? The expression of Soldiers' Battle means that the officers really didn't have very much to do, or if they did, they didn't do very much. They basically left the men to get on with it. Um, that isn't entirely true, but it, it captures the spirit of the thing. In the week and a half that followed the Battle of Balaclava, the Russians received a lot more reinforcements and they were now confident they had enough manpower to drive the Allies off the Crimean Peninsula altogether. So the Battle of the Inkerman is a two-stage battle. The Russians are going to bring a lot of troops around the flank of the Allies, but not on the open ground where Balaclava was fought, in high and broken ground. They will assemble a large battery of artillery to support this attack and they will overwhelm the weak flank defences where some British infantry companies are stationed, keeping an eye on the Russians, and then attack the entire Allied position uh, in the flank, supported by sorties from the fortress of Sevastopol. So they'll roll up the British, they'll then roll up the French, and that will be the job done. On paper, it's a great plan. Unfortunately, it breaks down because they're moving into position overnight. They get lost. Uh, bridges aren't where they're supposed to be. And they arrive not on the battlefield, not in an overwhelming force, but in a series of groups of men. And this is just enough of a breakdown of the plan to allow the relatively limited number of British soldiers to hold them off until the middle of the morning when reinforcements can come. The Russians have superiority because they brought up a lot of field artillery and they're marching uphill towards British positions through fog. So they get very close before the firing starts. And one British general actually rode down to encourage the troops he saw in front of him to come on and join the battle. Um, he was a bit short-sighted and hadn't realised they were Russians. Uh, they shot him, which I think leads to the soldiers' battle ticket. If you're in London, the Crimean War Memorial is three guardsmen from the Grenadier Guards who won the VC at the at this battle. Um, they're part of the, the Guards unit that held off the Russians for the longest throughout this battle. So they, they were celebrities, and of course they were stationed in London in peacetime. So as the battle begins, Lord Raglan is told what's going on, and he immediately orders two heavy guns to be sent up to the top of the, the British position, and when those guns arrive, they drive the Russian artillery away and they allow the, the British infantry to hold out until other British and French units turn up and counterattack the Russians and drive them back into the fortress with very heavy losses. At a critical point, the guards are led into battle by a naval captain because there are no standing guards officers. Um, they, uh, men have been shot and they've lost their officers. So... Being an, being an officer of the Crown, um, Captain William Peel um, pulled his sword out, waved it and encouraged the men to go on. And they, they followed him because he was doing the right thing and was leading them in the right direction. So it shows that the soldiers really did have a major role in this battle. They could have said, you know, who are you? Why are we following you? They saw that he was a, he was a proper English gentleman. He was the son of a former prime minister. Um, he led them into battle and he won the VC too. And he won it twice, actually, in this war. He was, I think, the only man ever to be awarded the VC twice. So it's a very grim battle, a lot of close quarters fighting, ultimately um, with edged weapons, bayonets, swords, 
as the ammunition begins to run low, but the Russians fail in their plan. And that's really the end of heavy fighting um, because the winter is going to break fairly soon. So the, those three battles are the, the battles that mean that the Allies are in the Crimea and the Russians can't get them out of the Crimea. But they don't get them one inch closer to taking Sevastopol. And on that topic, we haven't discussed yet the siege of Sevastopol, which lasted nearly a year. It resulted in the deaths of around 128,000 Allied forces and 102,000 Russians. What makes this one of the most famous sieges in history, even if it wasn't technically a siege? Yes, the siege of Sevastopol isn't actually a siege. It's more like the Western Front. You've got two dug-in, well-entrenched armies bombarding each other furiously. The Russians do have open communications to the north of Sevastopol, so they can move men and supplies in. But it's very difficult for them because they're coming over land with very poor transport links. And ultimately, the city will fall because those transport links are cut uh, by the Royal Navy in the Sea of Azov. The siege is a constant exchange of fire, is a bombardment, but it's also short-distance infantry assault. So it's very Western Front. If you know the dynamics of the Western Front, this is the Western Front with slightly older technology. The whole city is is smashed to pieces. Um, the Russians are losing very heavy casualties. If they lost 100,000 in, in, in Sevastopol, I would be very surprised. Um, they were losing thousands of men every day, particularly towards the end. They were losing three or 4,000 men a day in the last stages of the siege. I think their casualties are rather higher than that. It's an extended demonstration of how resilient Russian soldiers are, of how resourceful Russian engineers were in keeping the defences built up. Every day the Allies knocked the defences down and every night the Russians rebuilt them. You know, so it's, it's an attritional process in every sense. The British had to build a railway to supply enough ammunition to bombard the city. It was finally taken when in May 1855 the Royal Navy occupied the Sea of Azov and destroyed the connection with the Don River Basin, which is where most of the food and particularly the, the fodder for horses was coming from. And at that point, the Russians realized they would have to abandon the city. But being Russians, they stood one last grand assault and, and then retreated. The siege ends on the 9th of September, 1855, and it ends with a piece of grand theater by the French. The whole defense of the south of Sevastopol is dominated by one bastion, the Malakoff Bastion, which is higher up than all the others, gives you a commanding view over the rest of the defences. And the French managed to seize this and hold this bastion in a brilliant little operation involving the Imperial Guard. And from that point on, the French have, have finished with the war. They wanted to get some glory, and they've certainly got some. This is a spectacular piece of business. The British attack that's meant to go in with it is, is a bit of a fiasco. Um, for the second time, the British fail to capture the position they've identified. So when you see a pub in, the, in anywhere and it's called the Redan, it's to remind you that the British failed to take this bastion when the French took the Malakoff. Um, if you're in Paris, you can get a Malakoff gateau. It's a, it's a chocolate fort. Lovely. <laughs> Quite rich, but, um, but very, very second empire, rich, you know, a little bit overdone. It's a long, grim process. And in the process, a lot of people get killed and a lot more people die of disease. So British casualties from combat are a few thousand. British casualties from disease are getting on for 16,000, 17,000. So what's killing men in this war is conditions, 
disease, malnutrition, hypothermia, all of those things. So you've got exhausted, sick troops in poor housing with inadequate rations, and they're dying. And this will be the case in most wars right down to the First World War. Troops die of everything, but battle is not the dominant thing that kills them. And we're going to talk about this a bit in episode three, but those conditions do also spur some innovations. I was reading earlier this morning about the invention of the portable stove, which I think came about because of the Crimean War. A Frenchman visited the troops and was shocked at the food being served up. We should certainly mention Alexis Sawyer. He's the chef at the Reform Club in London. So he might be French, but he's working for the British. <laughs> we'll get onto that in episode three. But before we do, I just wanted to talk again about the Battle of Malakoff, which was considered the last major battle of the Crimean War. Um, we might expect that that was what hastened... It, it isn't, but we'll, uh, we can talk about that. I was going to ask just generally, what actually ended the conflict? Because it wasn't necessarily a decisive battle that ended the conflict. It was a myriad of factors. Where does the war end? Uh, the war ends because it's a limited war. It has to end by negotiation. What the Allies are doing is putting a lot of pressure on Russia, but the British have a clearer idea of how to put pressure on Russia. So throughout the war, the British have been building up the economic pressure on Russia by stopping Russia exporting its bulky produce. And in 2023, we all know this, Russia depends on exporting the things that it produces in its own country to pay its bills. In those days, it was grain, timber, forest products, iron. Uh, these days it's oil and gas. Um, nothing has changed. So if you stop the Russians exporting, you choke their economy and the money dries up and they run out of cash. By the time Sevastopol fell in September 1855, Russia was functionally bankrupt and it was facing bread riots conscription riots and the legitimacy of the empire was beginning to be called into question. So the Russians are coming out of this war because they can't win it. There's no way they can win it. They can't attack England or France. They would have to march through Germany, which is neutral. They can't do that. The Austrians have threatened to join the war if they don't make peace because this armed neutrality of the Austrians is costing them a lot of money. And the British have just built a very large fleet to knock down St. Petersburg. So when the Tsar, the new Tsar, Alexander II, and his ministers look at this, they realise we can't, we can't win, we're going to lose, and if we let all of these things play out, we can lose really badly and the empire will fall to pieces. So we'll make peace on these terms, which are relatively modest, and we'll get out of this war and try and mend Russia and make it more capable going forward. So it's a limited war with a limited peace settlement. The Russians give back everything they've taken from the Turks. They promise never to attack the Turks again, which obviously they do. They abandon any pretension to have a fleet in the Black Sea, which is massive. They have no navy in the Black Sea for the next 30 years. They lose the island of the Orland Islands, which means they no longer control the Central Baltic. And they make other critical concessions. They've lost the war, but it's not the end of the regime. They've saved the regime by ending the war on a compromise. And none of the battles explain why the war ends. The battles are part of the process that brings Russia to a state of exhaustion, which means it has to surrender. Is there anything in this episode that we haven't covered or that you would like to talk about before we wrap up? I think there are two battles between the 
fall of the Malakoff and the formal end of the war, which deserved to be a little better known. On the 17th of October 1855, an Anglo-French amphibious task force captured a fortress at a place called Kinburn, which is in these days in the southern Ukraine. It's at the confluence of the Bug and Dnieper rivers. Uh, so it's just up to the northwest of the Crimea. And this opened the way to the major Russian naval base at Mykolaiv, now, which is also now in the Ukraine. It's the first time that armor-plated warships are used in battle. Uh, very clever operation, much better handled than some of the earlier naval combined operations. And it's, I think, a template for power projection operations going forward. It emphasizes to the Russians that they're not going to win this war. Um, two months earlier, in, in August um, 1855, the British had destroyed the Russian naval base outside Helsinki, which was then part of the Russian Empire, in a battle that saw no fatal casualties on the Allied side and was consequently not reported very widely because there wasn't enough death and glory to celebrate. And finally, in December 1855, the Russians captured the great Turkish fortress of Kars, which is on the, the Caucasian front. It's a massive fortress on the top of a mountain, and they literally starved the defenders out, which the garrison was led by British uh, officers. This allowed the Russians to go into the peace process with the idea that they'd won the last battle of the war. Um, and the Russians will still talk about the Battle of Kars, but they gave it back because they'd lost the war. So there's quite a lot of fighting. There, there's some fighting in the White Sea. Uh, the Royal Navy engages in a gun battle with a Russian monastery. There's some fighting out in the far Pacific at Petropavlovsk. So this war is being fought right around the world, and it's involving not just this Eastern question about the future of the Ottoman Empire, but the future of East Asia. Uh, the future of the high north. These are all questions where Britain and Russia are at loggerheads. So in looking at this war, we have to remember that the Crimea is merely one incident in the middle of this conflict, which stretches a lot further than most people have, have yet come across. Sure, definitely a war fought in multiple theatres, not just one. That's about time for this episode. So thank you very much, Andrew. In the next episode, we're going to be considering the end of the conflict, the technological innovations that the Crimean War produced, and then finally, its legacy today. You were listening to Professor Andrew Lambert in conversation with Rachel Dinning. If you'd like to expand your knowledge of the Crimean War, head over to historyextra.com forward slash Crimean War, where you can find a whole host of content, including a comprehensive guide to the war, a timeline of the key moments, and an article written by Andrew on the Crimean War's legacy. And once you've read all of that, you can take our Crimean War quiz to put your knowledge to the test. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.